From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I think really there's never been a time where what you drink at a bar has been more different from what you can make for yourself at home. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks, and I'm your host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Now, it's the last episode in our summer season of Salt and Spine, so grab that sunblock and beach towel because we're soaking up every last minute. And I love cocktails in the summer. They're cool and refreshing and perfect for a beach day or a night grilling. Sometimes my wife and I love to make Negronis or a spritz, but don't venture too far from that because making your favorite drink can quickly become an all-in endeavor with a lengthy list of complex ingredients that can quickly eat up your budget and the space in your kitchen or on your liquor cart. But drinking cocktails doesn't have to be a spectator sport either. Our guest today, Maggie Hoffman, is getting home cooks and home drinkers alike into the game with her first book, The One Bottle Cocktail, More Than 80 Recipes with Fresh Ingredients and a Single Spirit. Her secret sauce? She approaches cocktails more like a cook and not a mixologist. Fresh ingredients found in your fridge can make great and simple cocktails. Now, the cocktails in Maggie's book taste as bright and refreshing as they are on the page, and we're so glad we got to sit down with her recently at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Hi, Maggie. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thanks so much for having me. Um, We're really glad to have you to talk about your cookbook, The One Bottle Cocktail. So I think this is the first conversation we've had. I don't think, I know, it is the first conversation we've had on a cookbook just on cocktails and drinks. Um, So I actually want to start by going back a little bit and ask you when you sort of started to get into cocktails and liquors and mixed drinks uh, yourself. Sure. Um, This might be... But this book might be a good transition for you because it is a cocktail book for people who cook. Awesome. Um, and that's sort of how I came at it as well. Uh, way back a million years ago, I had a little food blog and those were the days when food bloggers knew each other in person. <laughs> we would do Twitter meetups and I was living in New York City and my Parents live on the West Coast, and I was writing a blog about what I was cooking to show my mom what I was cooking. Nice. And uh, got in contact with the people at Serious Eats, which is a food website. Um, and I was a big fan of Serious Eats, and I wanted to be writing. I miss creative writing from college days, and I was working in publishing and sort of thought the pinnacle of my publishing career might be designing cookbooks because I've just always loved cookbooks and collected cookbooks. And I got to that point and wasn't that good at it. And it wasn't as creative as I was hoping. And so I just had this yearning to write again. And uh, so I got in contact with the people at Serious Eats and pitched them a column. They didn't have anyone writing about beer. Okay. And so I put myself forward as the person to do this with no qualifications except for the fact that I'm from Portland, Oregon. And that was good enough for them sure. at that time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rules have changed a little bit <laughs> since then. Uh, but I knew it was something that they needed. And it was a moment, 2009 or so, it was a moment where craft beer was getting really exciting and just really beginning to blossom. And so... I would write these columns about beer and I got involved with them and I would go into the offices sometimes to do taste tests for different foods. You know, they would get chocolate chip cookies from around New York City and cut them up and make everyone do a blind test. And at that point, that seemed really exciting to me. Right. Uh, so eventually I convinced them to hire me full time and I left my publishing job and 
the idea was that I was going to start an entire drink section of Serious Eats. So right. that's what we did. Yeah. And it had beer and wine and smoothies and everything else, including cocktails. And the beauty of the internet is you can see what people are reading. Mm-hmm. And the cocktail stuff was really popular, even back, you know, this was still kind of early in the cocktail revival. Um, people were getting excited about the drinks that they were beginning to have in bars. People were getting excited about classic drinks. And that's an audience that would always be up for a little DIY, you know, right. instead of having a sous vide machine, you'd build your own in a cooler and sure. all of that. And yes. so... Because we could see what everyone was reading, we realized simplicity was really something that people were looking for. They wanted simple drinks, but also better drinks. And I remember we posted a story that was a list of drinks you could make with three ingredients, and still people were angry that they were complicated. <laughs> Interesting. But, well, they were only three ingredients, but you had to go buy this and you had to go buy that. Right. And a bottle of chartreuse can be 40, 50 bucks. Sure. And young people just getting excited about cooking. Most cooking ingredients aren't that expensive. And so that was really a barrier. Um, so as you do on the internet to fill space, we wrote a story um, that was a collection of drinks to make with a bottle of gin and a trip to the grocery store. And at that point, I had been interviewing lots of bartenders around town and writing about their menus. And I'd started making the drinks that they were giving us recipes for. And I was getting really excited about how great some of these drinks tasted and what you could do at home. But I wanted to offer drinks that were a little more accessible. So we did this post And it was hugely popular. And every year after it, in the spring, that post would come up again, that people were Googling it or whatever, Right. what to do with gin in a trip to the grocery store. If you're going to host a dinner party and you're going to go to the grocery store anyway, you don't necessarily want a separate trip to the liquor store. Um, And so we would just see so many people reading this post. So we did another for vodka. We did another. We did them for all the different spirits. And... um, Meanwhile, we were also exploring all of the exciting things happening in bars and all of the trends that were happening. And I met bartenders from all over the country and all over the world. And I'd read cocktail books that were coming out. And at that time, there were so many cocktail books that were capturing a bar basically in a book. Hmm. So that if you went to a bar and you loved it, you could come home and read a book and realize you couldn't make those drinks at home. Right. Very similar to like a restaurant cookbook. Sure. Right? It's beautiful. It's wonderful to have. It's a, an experience you have there, but very hard to recreate at home. Exactly. Exactly. And so a friend introduced me uh, to my editor at 10 Speed Press. And at the time I was still working in Series Eats and uh, she said, let's have drinks. And I assumed we would talk about her cookbooks that she published. She works with a lot of great uh, cookbooks from 10 speed and we always did gift guides and I'm a cookbook junkie. I probably have more books than are on the wall in this (laughs) shop right here. Awesome. So I assume that was what the conversation would be. And I showed up at trick dog, which is a great cocktail bar close to my house. And I had heard from my neighbors that they, you know, it's a very serious, fun, but serious cocktail bar. And I'd heard that they had a pina colada. I have to get it. Okay. And it said on the menu, pina colada for two. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's kind of like a punch bowl. So I order this drink and this woman shows up. It's a business meeting. (laughs) 
And it's a pineapple with two straws in it. <laughs> so it got pretty intimate pretty quickly. Yeah. And she's so sharing this pineapple. And she said to me, the thing that's really hard about books is that you have to have an idea that you still are interested in two years later. Yeah. And I said, well, it's not that different from the internet. On the internet, your things that are probably building most of your weekly or monthly traffic are old posts that people look up over and over again. And she said, like, what? And I said, like, what can you make with a bottle of gin and a trip to the grocery store? And she said, how quickly can that be a book? Right. <laughs> that's fascinating. So that's the whole story. Yeah. I love seeing that evolution of um, how you were in publishing, sort of thinking about your entry into maybe cookbook world, cookbook design, and then sort of took this path through food media. But the whole time it's drawing you back to this, to this cookbook idea. So you say it's a cookbook for people who want to make drinks with a quick trip to the grocery store and one bottle of liquor. Um, how did you develop those recipes then to keep them simple? I started reaching out to great bartenders who I'd interviewed in the past, people that I'd written about before, friends from Portland, friends from San Francisco, friends from New York. And soon as it grew, bartenders who'd won awards and who were um, at great bars around the country, I was seeking out people who maybe hadn't got as much attention as they should have, especially women behind the bar. And I would just reach out to them and say, I'm doing this project here are the rules. You're kind of tying your hands behind your back. Right. Bartenders work in bars where they're, all the newest products are there and this cool vermouth from Spain and this liqueur from Italy. And they are all about using these products um, to make complex and beautiful cocktails. You know, I think really there's never been a time where what you drink at a bar has been more different from what you can make for yourself at home. That distance just has grown bigger and bigger as bars try to differentiate themselves. Sure. So I said, one bottle, you can use gin, you can use rum, and everything else needed to get us to the place of a complex and well-balanced modern cocktail without using any of their standard tricks. Okay. So a lot of them ended up they ended up reaching for some things again and again uh, that became sort of the backbone of this book, that there are certain things in your pantry that are really valuable when you're making cocktails. Uh, for example, tea can sort of dry out a cocktail, and the tannin in tea is sort of like the tannin you might get from a barrel if you're aging wine. Um, and teas can add sort of a subtle savory flavor, and just anything that can balance the sweetness uh, that might be in the drink from juice or something like that. Um, the texture from tea is really cool. Marmalade is really awesome in a cocktail because it's a little sweet and a little bitter. Um, so, And then some of them got really creative with fresh things yeah. that you could get bitterness from radicchio. Right. Any of us who make salads know you can get bitterness from radicchio, but I never would have thought before Zach Overman in Seattle said to me, I've been playing around with radicchio. <laughs> I never would have thought that that was headed for a cocktail. Yeah. So you say you told the bartenders not to rely on some of their standard tricks. What do you mean when you say that? Well, I mean, bartenders might be thinking about classic cocktails and moving outward from there, but they had to get a little more creative. And so many of them were wandering around the grocery store and sending me texts or Facebook messages from the grocery store as they got inspired by ingredients. Right. And they'd say, 
uh, what do you think about miso? Or what do you think about making a drink with olive oil? And they really just got wild. And I probably talked to about a thousand bartenders wow. and ended up getting, you know, some of them just quit. And some of them <laughs> got really excited. Some of them said, screw you. Those aren't cocktails. <laughs> and some of them got excited. And I ended up testing probably 300 or 400 recipes. Yeah. Um, and then selecting the ones that felt like they really could be that signature drink at a fancy restaurant or a cool bar, even though they didn't include any of those ingredients that are commonly found in those bars these days. And one thing that I really loved about the recipes in here is you say it's one bottle of liquor and a trip to the grocery store, but it's not necessarily a lot of obscure things you would have to seek out at the grocery store. A lot of the recipes you can actually make with things you find already in your kitchen, like tea or like honey or citrus. Vinegar or is really Vinegar. common. Mm-hmm. That was one of the first drinks many people make when they uh, pick up the book is a rye drink that has vinegar in it because most people have those things lying around. Yeah. Did you think about organizing the book by seasons? I know at the end you have an index where you group the various recipes by season as a guide for people, but the book itself is organized into chapters based on liquor. Yeah, it's sort of a toss-up because I think the book is deeply seasonal, that you're really using produce as the star so often. Um, But also I wanted people to look at what they had, whether it's like vodka in your freezer or bourbon on your mantle or wherever you keep your booze uh, and sort of play around to use up the bottle before you have to buy something else. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Maggie Hoffman, author of The One Bottle Cocktail. Now, seasonality in cocktails is really important, and that's what makes Maggie's book so interesting. She's bringing together fresh produce, fresh herbs, things you can find in your pantry and your kitchen, and incorporating them into cocktails. It makes it really easy to make a cocktail that pairs with whatever you're making, uses leftover foods in your fridge or leftover ingredients from whatever you're cooking that night. And we'll talk about this in a minute, too, but there are plenty of recipes here in the One Bottle Cocktail uh, that are perfect for those who don't drink alcohol and still want a refreshing drink. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, a recreational cooking school in the heart of San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. We love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's perfect for learning different techniques that you can bring back to your own kitchen from their expert staff and teachers. I personally love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine episodes. Now, don't miss some of their upcoming classes, such as a class on Jewish food you can make in time for Rosh Hashanah. They're also having a fun pinchos pop-up with cookbook author Marty Buckley. You won't want to miss it. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's upcoming classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now back to our conversation with Maggie Hoffman. One of my favorite recipes in here that I think is really just a unique recipe is the Breakfast of Champions cocktail. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a fun one. It is a fun one. Um... So the Breakfast of Champions uh, is actually from a local bartender, um, Jared Hirsch, who's in Oakland, and he also has uh, a lineup of syrups. Uh, Caged Heat uh, is one of them. It's the nickel dime syrups. And Jared made this great drink that's sort of a milk punch um, that the milk is infused with Honey Nut Cheerios. Which is amazing. Which just means the infusion is nothing complicated. You are literally putting Honey Nut Cheerios in a mason jar, covering them with milk, and leaving it. Right. 
and then you can eat them or not. Right. You strain it off, and then that uh, flavored milk uh, is shaken with bourbon and honey. And it's as simple as could be, but you really do get the nutty flavor from the Cheerios and this sort of nostalgic uh, Cheerio, honey nut Cheerio flavor. Um, and then it's really cut with bourbon. And so it has that real cocktail flavor too. And for me, yeah. it's almost like you could serve this instead of eggnog in the holidays. Yeah. Um, or you could serve it at breakfast. If you're hosting brunch, I would not judge. Right. Yeah. I, I had the same thought with eggnog. Like this is a great substitute. I also, I love cereals and I was like, what, el- what other cereals could I infuse some oh, milk yeah. with and make a cocktail with? Like, could I do some cinnamon toast crunch? Sure. Probably. There was locally, there was a bar who were, they were infusing spirits with, I want to say cocoa pops. Oh, the, one of those. yeah. Right. Yes, that sounds awesome. Um, so we talked to a lot of cookbook authors about their process for testing recipes. Um, we haven't talked to somebody about the process for testing cocktail recipes. Can you tell us a little bit? I think probably many of our listeners may be jealous that you just get to taste and test cocktail recipes all day long. Tell us a little bit about how that works. It's a double-edged sword. <laughs> people often, that's actually the first question people often ask me is, how are you not drunk all the time? Uh, and the truth is, it's not really that different. When I was with Serious Eats and we would do review meals, you would take a bite of things and your job is to make your memory really work and take your notes and, you know, form the impressions you can without eating more than normal human. Right. I don't drink more than a normal human, I think. (laughs) But so usually testing recipes, I try to plan um, a few drinks a day to taste just in terms of shopping to make the shopping more efficient. Sure. I think if you ask any cookbook writer, they're going to say the parts of the job that really, really take your time are shopping and cleaning. Yeah. Uh, That is real. Right. Uh, I don't have an assistant. Right. <laughs> I do sometimes invite people over to taste with me because I think it's important to have more than one viewpoint. Um, so I will, you know, do all the prep and then make the drinks and give it a sip. And I will usually swallow one sip because I do think it's important to get the sort of retronasal activity. Much of what you taste is what you smell. And if you Mm -hmm. don't swallow, you miss some of that, especially with spirits where there's kind of this uh, heat from the alcohol. Um, Right. So I usually swallow one sip. And then if I need to taste again, I will usually spit uh, just like a wine taster would. Yeah. Um, And so usually I taste and it's either wow in which case I sit down and write about it. Or it's like, meh, in which case I usually don't. Yeah. Let's talk about people who are maybe sort of new to making cocktails at home and might pick up your book because it feels really accessible for them. Where do you suggest people start? Well, is there a recipe that feels like this is perfect for somebody who just wants to try making a drink tonight while they're making dinner? Yeah. Well, I would always say cocktails are more fun with friends. And so I love the pitcher drinks and there's a handful of them in here. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them is called the Passport to Chile. And it's a big old picture. Um, with the photograph is so beautiful because it has salt sprinkled on the top. It's a, basically yes. a pitcher of grapefruit juice and lime and honey. And it has Pisco, which is a grape brandy, uh, 
that's uh, from Peru, and they also make it in Chile, and there are vicious arguments between the two countries about what Pisco can be. But an unaged Pisco is a beautiful sort of floral spirit um, that is lovely with grapefruit, which also has sort of a floral quality. And this drink also gets a little bit of hot sauce. And uh-huh. it's so easy. You don't need a cocktail shaker. That can be something that's intimidating to beginners. Right. This one, you're just putting it in a pitcher and you're stirring it. You can refrigerate it for a couple hours until your friends arrive uh, and then serve it up on ice. And I like to put a little sliver of grapefruit on each glass and a sprinkle of salt. Um, uh-huh. And if you don't have Pisco, you can also make it with tequila. Uh-huh. Interesting. So where do you think cocktails are headed? I think maybe I just was in Italy for vacation a little while ago, so we were drinking spritz all the time. But I also just saw an article that like Aperol has invested heavily in this marketing campaign, particular in social media to like make spritzes take off. Spritzes are pretty easy to make. Is this the direction that you think cocktails are headed more towards simple recipes in your book? Simple concoctions like a spritz that are easy to put together and really refreshing? as sort of like a rebuttal to the complicated, elaborate cocktails that we're seeing and can experience and enjoy at cocktail bars and restaurants? A little bit of both. Okay. Uh, I think it's so exciting what's happening in bars these days, but even bars have realized that they have to simplify. Right. And so what's happening is when you go to a bar like Trick Dog down the street, you'll see on the menu that something has 20 ingredients. But in fact, what they are doing is they're basically batching everything that is shelf-stable together and making that 20-ingredient drink into a three-bottle pickup. So it'll be the the spirits all mixed together and then whatever syrup or fresh element so that the bartender only has to pick up two things. Mm-hmm. That complicated drink makes sense for them to make labor wise because they're going to serve a hundred of them that night at home. That's never going to be true. So the bars that serve complicated drinks are learning to simplify while offering something quite complicated. Um, But at home, I think there's both people getting really excited about the unusual ingredients that you can find uh, and wanting to learn how to use those as well as people who want seasonal fresh cocktails that fit with sort of the way they cook. And, you know, we see all the simple, simple cooking books, the new Otolenghi is simple. Mm -hmm. Simple is obviously what people need to fit cooking and drink making too into their daily lives. Right. Now, what about for non-drinkers? Are there recipes in the book that could be adapted to be alcohol-free? Yeah, I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm so glad that we're seeing more and more bars offer interesting uh, non-alcoholic cocktails. Right. Um, you'll notice as you go through the book, I was just thinking there's one, there's a drink that has uh, strawberry and balsamic together and it's made with rum and it gives the instructions for how to make it into a non-alcoholic drink. So I hope that people can offer both and make sure everyone feels welcome. If you're having people over, you never know who's not going to be drinking. Right. Yeah, that's great. So talking about cookbooks a bit, you said you're a big cookbook collector, big cookbook fan. Were there inspirations for this book, cookbooks that you turned to or other cocktail books that sort of guided you? Well, 
the main thing was the photographer, Kelly Poleo, is just this incredible, incredible photographer. And I had books that she had done before and was so drawn to her style. She just has this magic touch with sort of making drinks that you want to grab from the pages. So she did the, um, let's see, she did the Negroni book and uh-huh. she did the Art of the Shim. Okay. Um, and she did Modern Cider. Um, so I knew I wanted to work with her because I right. had a bunch of books in my collection that were really beautiful. And she actually just shot my next book and it's even more beautiful. Awesome. So stay Can't tuned. Wait. Yeah. Now we speak the same language. You know, we'd right. done it before. We just kind of got to work right away. We knew each other. It was the same team. Right. Um, so that was cool. And is fo- food photography with cocktails and drinks, is it, is it a different approach than food photography, non-drink based food photography? You have to move fast mm-hmm. because drinks sort of die. You know, you right. can't have your ice melting. You can't have your fizz dying. So you kind of, maybe that's true with a lot of food too, but it seems like when you're taking photographs of drinks, you need to move really quickly or make it again. And sometimes you get the whole setup and put the drink out the very last moment. Right. Um, and Kelly, the added bonus of working with Kelly Paleo, she, as a former bartender, had an amazing collection of beautiful glassware and also really understands how drinks work and sort of what would be needed to keep it from separating. Um, and uh, she was she and her crew could get amazing, beautiful ice. There's nothing that bothers me more than a cocktail book where the photos have this like milky sort of gross ice. The ice (laughs) should be crystal clear. Yes. And uh, Kelly's work really just captures the most beautiful side of cocktails. Yeah. So you're working on another book. Is there any preview you can give us into what we can expect there? It's coming from Tenspreed Press next spring. Uh, and it's all about drinks that you can make in a pitcher. Awesome. So okay. for people who entertain, for people who don't have a cocktail shaker or don't want to use a cocktail shaker in front of guests. Um, right. And also for prepping ahead and drinking over the course of a week. Um, it's organized by flavor profile. So you can sort of find your kind of drink and make a big batch and have it for a barbecue or a dinner party or yeah, whatever. That's awesome. So you note in the book that um, the gin rocket, you say it pairs well with food. Obviously, we talk a lot about pairing wines with foods. How do you approach pairing cocktails with foods? I usually love to serve cocktails before dinner. I'm not usually a drink cocktails all night person, but it can be interesting to pair cocktails and food because the ingredients can be exactly what you're serving. So right. the idea of making a cocktail that gin rocket has fennel in it, which is cool because there are a lot of liqueurs that have fennel and star anise and sort of related flavors. But here she just goes fresh. So it has fennel and arugula and lime and gin. And it's very simple. And I also really love cocktails paired with dessert. Often in a wine pairing situation, the wine isn't sweet enough So if the food is sweeter than the wine, the wine will taste very bitter. Hmm. A cocktail may have just enough sugar to do that match um, more successfully. Interesting. So we talked earlier about um, bartenders having standard tricks that they fall back on. Are there tricks that home cocktail makers could rely on to sort of up their cocktail game a little bit more? Um, 
Well, I have to say, starting at the very basic, measuring carefully is important. And I think uh, if you're just kind of like winging it with a big measuring cup, that can get, uh, things can get a little out of balance. And in these kinds of drinks, a quarter of an ounce makes a difference. Um, so that's one. Obviously, another is making simple syrups, because if you try to shake sugar into a cocktail, you will get a gritty mouthful. Um, and one of the most fun things you can do is explore using different sugars. Nowadays, you go to Whole Foods, there's a huge range of sugars, and and there are less processed sugars that will have a little more flavor. Well, we're coming up on the end of our time, so I wanted to play a fun little game, if you're up for it, and talk about maybe some recommended pairings of drinks or cocktail themes that you might pair with a type of food. So say you're at home and it's pasta night. You have a nice bowl of pasta. What type of cocktail would you suggest? Well, from this book, I would probably go with the Old Boulevard, which is uh, inspired by an Italian liqueur called Chinar. Chinar is this very vegetal. It's a little bit like Campari, but... Um, a little less sweet and fruity and a little more vegetal and has an artichoke on the label. Artichoke isn't the only thing that's in it. Okay. Um, but so inspired by that, we made a bittersweet radicchio syrup that has a lot of those same flavors, grapefruit twists and rosemary and radicchio. Um, so that kind of goes Italian. Yeah. Okay. Here's a tricky one. Breakfast for dinner. Ooh, I like that move. Uh, I do have a favorite for that. Um, one of my favorite drinks in the book is a rum drink uh, that is just beautiful that is called the Tango Nuevo, and it's from a bartender named Andrew Moore. Uh, and it's a combination of aged rum and honey and cold brew coffee. Okay. And so the sweetness from the honey and the rum is sort of brought down by the coffee. And then the key is that you sprinkle on smoked sea salt. Um, which you can buy online, but also find at Whole Foods in lots of places now. Jacobson in Portland makes one. Uh, the smoky salt and the bitterness of the coffee and the richness of the rum sort of come together in this magical sort of turn your tongue upside down flavor. And if you were making like waffles, that would just be the ultimate. Yeah, that sounds really amazing. Okay, last one, and my Midwesterner is about to come out in full force right now. Um, what cocktail would you pair with a walking taco? Do you know walking tacos? Describe to me the walking so, taco. So, well, there's a debate we've been having about the base of a walking taco, but I believe it is a, a small bag of Doritos. It's crumbled, it has like seasoned ground beef on top, shredded lettuce, sour cream. It's sort of like a taco in a bowl. Some people think it is based on Fritos. That's a, a debate we haven't yet resolved, but I'm on Team Doritos. So uh, a taco in a bowl. What do I, we pair a cocktail? I love it. Uh, one of my favorites in the book is another pitcher drink. It's called El Gallito, and it's from Matthew McKinley Campbell, who's uh, at Glenna's down in the dog patch now. Okay. Um, he's super talented and this drink, I just think, is so brilliant. He's so smart. The idea is you fill up your blender with a bunch of fresh ingredients, uh, like pineapple and cherry tomatoes and cilantro and green onions and lime juice, and you add a little bit of the adobo sauce from a can of chipotles. Okay. Not enough to get real spicy, but enough to add a little smoke and savory, and you... Process it in your blender until it's totally smooth, and then you strain it. And you don't throw out 
the solids because the solids are basically pineapple, cilantro, the adobo sauce, the cherry tomatoes. It's salsa. Ah. And the liquid is your drink mix and you mix it equal parts with vodka or tequila and put it in a pitcher. And that is great for serving with tacos or for babos rancheros or whatever you're doing. And then the salsa can be served on the side. So you're making a salsa and a cocktail at the same time. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Maggie, for being here. And I just have to say, I feel like in hindsight, next time you're here, we should probably have cocktails while we talk, right? That sounds like a plan. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Head to our website, saltandspine.com, for exclusive content, including featured recipes from the One Bottle Cocktail, and to enter our regular cookbook giveaways. If you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program was produced today by Allison Sullivan and myself. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in the fall with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.